This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing. On today's show, myself, Steve English and Gordon Rich are going to look back at the Dutch round of World SBK 2022. And this is a round that we're going to probably talk about all the way through the season because there was a small incident that's going to have massive repercussions, you'd imagine. Obviously enough, the Paddock Pass podcast also supported by Renthal Street and with over 800 street fitments for handlebars, bar mounts, clip-ons, brake pads, chains and sprockets. Gordo. I've got to ask you the question. For your Kawasaki Versus, you can obviously go to rental.com and use the Fit My Bike tool to see what you'd like to add to your bike. But is there anything that jumps off you in terms of any of the add-ons you'd like to make to your bike? Uh, not right now. I'm lucky it's got lots of stuff on it. But the one thing I would like it to do is actually have a functioning right-hand heated grip. Heated grips are the greatest invention in the history of mankind, obviously, when you live in Scotland and ride motorbikes. So <laughs> having one that works and one that doesn't is actually worse than having two that don't. So I need to get that fixed. Um, otherwise, I don't know, mate. I don't know. I don't know what I'd add. Having one that works and one that doesn't work, I, I, I can't imagine how a comparison could be made between us as well, Gordo, in that yes. regard. I know I'm I'm sitting here on my holidays already, straight out of ass and out on my holidays, and uh, you're straight back into the office to get down to the grindstone. Exactly, after the uh, an absolute disaster travel home yesterday, mate. I nearly never made it. I got on my plane an hour and a half late, and it was still sitting waiting on me because that's how bad Amsterdam Airport was yesterday. Four hours to get to security, not through security, to security. So that was a very long weekend for a, the closest race to me other than uh, the one in Donington. Well, I have to say, Gordo, for me, I was leaving the paddock on Sunday night and I was a bit panicked because anyone that knows me knows I need to be at the airport really early. I don't like to have the mad dash through the airport. And uh, I was I was waiting for some, some, some other colleagues to finish up before we were able to get on the road. And I was chatting to, to Big Lawrence, manager for like Michael Vandermark, Garrett Gerloff, Camier's old manager. And, and Lawrence was there saying like, oh, don't worry about it, Steve. Like, there's not going to be any stress getting to the airport on time. There's huge delays in Skipple because there's baggage handling strikes and, you know, one thing after the other. And, and you know, I'm, I, I'm not going to lie. I didn't believe Lawrence. I was panicking. And then I get to the airport. Sure enough, my flight's been delayed. Charlie Hiscott left an hour and a half before me to get to the airport. His flight ended up being an hour late. He was leaving even after me. Ended up having dinner with him up in the airport. No stress at all. No panic. And then got home in time. And everything worked out all right for me, Gordo. But uh, obviously enough, not quite the same for you. And I think that could be a little bit of the moral of the story for the weekend. What works out well for one person doesn't always work well for everyone else. Because uh, I think that leads us to one of the big talking points of the weekend. And, and Gordo, I'll throw it to you. I'll give you the honour on uh, today's show to pick the obvious talking point from Aston. Well, I mean, when you get the two top superbike riders in the world crashing into each other, uh, or if you're wearing one particular colour of shirt, one crashed into this one. If you're wearing another colour of shirt, the other one crashed into your guy. Um, we had the controversy of that. Really kind of lucky to everybody to walk away from it because it's quite fast where they crash. But they had a, a, a mutual contact that caused both of them to crash out of the race. Um, a very important race. And it went from being a Jonathan Ray potential three wins in one weekend at Assen again uh, to being... You know, the other guy escaped away from both of those top riders. So, yeah, I mean, you can take whatever view you like about the the accident, the incident. Um, To me, it was a racing incident that both riders made a tiny error of judgment, maybe more than one. But at that pace, when they're racing that close, this thing can happen. I I personally think it's 50-50, And it's just... You know, I, I don't see a big deal. And the clincher for me was, obviously, the race stewards did a look at it, checked all the angles they had, which were more than they gave us at the time, um, and came to the conclusion that there was no more action to be taken. No one got hauled up in front of the stewards. Uh, no one got penalised and then hauled up in front of the stewards. Nothing happened. Because, to me, what happened is a racing incident. Um, and because the guys are racing so close, it was lap six, I think. You know, it wasn't like the beginning. It was lap six and they were still that close. So, um, I don't. you can talk all day about it and that's fun to do. But there's no need. 
because I think it was a recent incident with, as I say, maybe one more to blame than the other. There's no need, Gordo, but we are going to talk about it all yeah, day. I'm going to give you my quick talking point before we move on to, to talk about that instant. And for me, the big talking point is just that we saw again just how strong World Superbikes is right now because we missed out on Top Rack versus Ray. That's been the biggest battle that we've seen on track in any series, really, over a prolonged period that I can ever remember. Those two guys last year going out at hammer and tongs absolutely every round. This is the first time we've had a clash between them. And you would have thought that this would change the dynamics of the race. We would have been ended up into you know, quite a boring processional race. Bautista going to run off into the distance as he did. And instead, we were able to see that the battle for second and, and third, the battle for fourth, fifth, sixth, it was really close. And we got to see that even without those top two gunning for each other, there's great racing all the way down the field in World SBK. And this was a chance to actually showcase that. I thought that the locatelli Lekawona battle was great. And then we also had the Lowe's, Bassani, Reading scrap as well for fourth position. That was a really good battle too. And I thought it was a good illustration of just how competitive it is all the way down the championship order. And that's only a good thing for us. All those regulation changes that we've talked about on the pod over the last few years have helped close the gaps. And now we've got really good racing all the way through. We've got loads of great riders. That battle from fourth to 14th is depth that I've never seen before in World Superbikes. Yeah, I think Alex Lowe's was the one that first said 4-14th this year, and he's right. There is very much a top three, but the guys behind them are really close, and I'm sure we'll get their turn in the, the daylight and the sunshine this year. Um, despite there being such strong top three. Uh, and it was wonderful to watch the, the racing down there, and especially when someone like Scott Redden suddenly showed up again. Um, there was lots of results that people got in race two that were dependent on what happened. Uh, Bassani should have been fifth and went down to sixth, I think, because of he, he, he uh, had too many infringements going wide. Um, there was incidents from the beginning. Nozani went off. Um, Gerloff went off, or else they'd have been, certainly Gerloff would have been in a, a higher point in the mix. Um, you mentioned about the other riders and Batista. Batista, I think, got contacted by two riders after that incident. In the melee afterwards, you get contact with Lekona and you get contact with Michael Ruber Rinaldi, who appeared to have some kind of problem. Um, so it wasn't plain sailing right after for Batista, but once he got clear, it was. But after that, anything went. You, you had no idea what was going to happen. You did suspect that Locatelli, just through experience, and obviously the Yamaha being a really completely sorted bike, as long as you get the setup correct, um, you did fancy him to do what he did and eventually get past. But the reason was great all the way down the field. I mean, the gaps are still there. There's still gaps between groups, but the fights within those groups, and if you get away with a group, you'll be able to still compete in that group and not be dropped off. Is a sign that things are really close. Um, and even look at Lowe's. I mean, Lowe's resurrected what was a horrible weekend for him. After all that bad luck last year and at the first round not being right and one of the races really not right, um, look at how he recovered from that. After two not-his-fault, no-scores, he bounces back and wins that little battle behind the podium places and finishes fourth. I mean, wherever you looked down that order, there was properly memorable things. All the way down, Michael van der Mark finishing eighth, etc. in race two. It was just, you know, the competition is fantastic. Yeah, we're going to have loads to talk about in the course of this pod, but Gordo, we might as well start with the big story. And uh, obviously, that was the fact that uh, you know we were both in 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 Aston, and you didn't come for dinner at once with me this weekend. Big sorry, disappointment. Mate. No, no, I'm sorry, but you know what comes first. Amazingly, unless you, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'd love to have a TV job sitting there doing nothing all day. Oh, it's an easy away, job, easy get Gordo. Anyone can do it, mate. And not sitting having to sit there crashing things out till God knows when in the morning. Um, no, I mean, Aston was fantastic. The, the the whole event was just singing from day one. Um, it was very open. Paddock Show was back. You name it. But I don't think anybody expected to get that incident. You know, there was a lot of people to see it on Sunday. There was a ton of people turned up um, relative to Superbike. Um, and it was fantastic. But they, they, they got enough drama in, in one corner on lap six um, to last them all weekend. 
Yeah, because I have to say, Gordo, like we had a massive crowd this weekend, and it was obviously Aston's always quite popular because the Dutch fans want to see Michael van der Mark, and obviously Mikey was able to race despite his injuries, and they came out in massive numbers. I think we'd we'd fifty thousand for the weekend, and it seemed that pretty much all of them were there on Sunday because yeah. that grandstand from the Gert Timmer curve all the way down to you know turn one, turn two seemed absolutely full, and uh, it was great to see, and they were treated to something special. And let's be honest, before we talk about the actual crash, they were treated to some great racing all the way through the weekend because race one in the Super Bowl race, you know, we saw just that relentlessness from Jonathan Ray. Once again, he wasn't going to get beaten. And I thought Saturday's race in particular, we saw that Bautista looked like he had the faster bike. We saw through the change of direction, Bautista was super smooth through them. It looked easy for him. And then through the fast corners at the end of the lap, Ray was able to put his bike in the right place at the right time to block any moves. But it did look like Bautista had that edge. And I thought it was really interesting that Bautista wasn't going to try and push something. He wasn't going to try and make up for any lap time. He was going to just settle for his points. If an opportunity presented itself to make a move for the win, he was going to take it. But he wasn't going to press the issue. Whereas with Johnny, we know Johnny's going to press the issue. We know he's got a bike disadvantage compared to Bautista with that Ducati. And it, and. We're getting to see once again Johnny Ray at his absolute peak. And he's the best superbike rider we've ever seen. Picked up his 100th win for Kawasaki this weekend. And all the numbers that you see for Ray, you know, they're, they're astounding. But I think for me, the biggest one is that he's always wanting more. And I think that was really what showed on Sunday as well. He saw there was an opportunity to make a move on Top Rack. Because when we rode on board with Top Rack, it's clear as day. Top Rack makes a mistake. He runs in too hot into turn one, misses his apex. And when we were riding on board with Ray, you were pretty sure Top Rack's gone off the track. There's no way that he could have connected that. And then suddenly we, we go on board with Top Rack and we see that, sure enough, Top Rack was able to keep it in the white lines because... That's what Top Rack can do on the brakes compared to other riders when it's already pitched in. But there was a gap to go through. If Ray doesn't go for that gap, why is he on the track in his mind? He has to go for that gap. Top Rack, he has to try and defend this position. And really, from when Top Rack makes his mistake, they're just on a collision course to where the incident happened. For me, I, I called it at the time as a racing incident. The angles we've seen, obviously the onboard shots are one thing. We've seen an angle from the crowd. like, And it's not clear from that, other than the fact that Top Rack has clearly ran in too hot. But we do know that Race Direction, they've access to more cameras as well. They can use the CCTV images. So they've been able to see that. They've said it's a racing incident. And there's nothing that I've seen or heard since the incident to make me think it was anything other than a racing incident. 50-50 blame, maybe 51 Johnny 49 top rack but it's racing you know not all crashes have to have a penalty not all crashes have someone to blame sometimes it's just racing yeah and i mean when both riders spoke as they were as was good of them to come and speak to us even though they were obviously fizzing um and we got great in-depth analysis from their points of view the the bottom line is they both also said even though they blamed the other guy they also said it was a racing incident and among, and among all the other stuff they said and the criticism of each other is valid if you take it on complete face value. Maybe somebody should have looked to the left or to the right before they, they got to the stage whereby there was a contact. But again, that's a fast corner. That's an exit, a fast corner. Um, they're already concentrating 100% on what they're doing. Uh, so there's lots of different hairs to split. But that accident was avoidable if both riders had looked in, in, in a particular direction but one of them would still have had to have given way to the other one. Um, and one will argue that he couldn't, that that was his line, he was committed, he was at full racing speed. And the other one would say, well, I didn't go off track, I was just coming back even more onto track where I should be. Um, I expected the rider behind to, or, or the side of him to move out of the way. So that's that's the difficulty. There is no obvious right or wrong here. There was the start of a mistake, it didn't end up in a huge consequence for Top Rank. But maybe... He still looked a bit harder. And maybe Johnny, knowing that Top Rack had, or, or thinking that Top Rack might not have gone miles wide, should maybe have thought, oh, what if he cuts back on here? But that's all things that you have to allow for the other guy to do. You know, what could they have controlled? Maybe looked one way or the other. Maybe both should have. So it, It's easy to forget, like when 
Johnny peels into turn one, a tank, a fairing, all this to see through. I know Johnny sits upright on the bike, but his eyes are still going to be focused on where he has to go. And yeah, fair enough. He could have looked across, but it would have cost him time. It would have cost him speed. So for him, he sees the mistake, gets down the inside of his bike, and then he's committed to that yeah. line. He's committed to getting on the gas when he does. Like that's where for me, it's just, it is one of those things. It's, you know, it's, it's bad for top rack. It's bad for Johnny. And I think that's the big thing from it. I think maybe if Johnny survived and Top Rack didn't, you'd look at it and say, you know, he, he got away with one there. But both of them ended up being penalized for it. And that's the big shame, because obviously coming into this race, Johnny was leading the championship from Bautista, looking really strong to make a three from three in Assen. Top Rack needed to beat Alvaro as well to try and claw back some of those points. Yeah. And it's, it's easy to forget as well. Alvaro could have gone down as well because yeah. he was so close to them. When you look at the at the replay of it in turn one, it's top rack right, Bautista. They're all right beside each other. And then this incident happens. And I, I really don't know how Alvaro managed to miss them, but just about managed to miss them. And then suddenly he has the contact from behind with Lecaone on the run into the right-hander. Then he has Rinaldi coming at him as well. You know, this could have been a disaster for all three riders. Yeah, it could have been, and it was very dramatic right afterwards. It wasn't just the incident. We were all concentrating on that at the time, but right afterwards, that, that absolutely, you know, that really tripped everybody up. Um, everybody was, like, slightly shocked. Bautista said it took him two laps to really kind of calm down and concentrate, but when he did, he was, he was, it was going to be his race all day. Um, Lekona, you know, what a great performance he had, but again, you know, he had a contact with Bautista. Yeah, lots of riders in that following group were like wow you know they were all offline suddenly broken concentration so it took a while to settle down again um, but even when it did settle down it was still fantastic racing which is which is what we want to see but I mean to me Bautista the way he handled all that and the way he was patient in the first two races didn't do anything daft didn't try to you know realise that jo this was probably Johnny's weekend and the, the best he could do was second although you know he wasn't quite as passive in the first race as he had been in the first race in Motorland where he really was he definitely did try a bit not, not try a bit more he just was willing to risk a bit more let's say in the first two races in, in Assen and look at what the reward was finally because of someone who was comp you can't plan that in your, your pre-race preparations he's 18 points ahead of his nearest challenger after six you know, he's at a track where Johnny was going one three races and leave, you know, ten or twelve points ahead. You know, it's pretty that's that's a pretty impressive turnaround. And there's a big difference between the, the Bautista under pressure from twenty nine from you know, from twenty nineteen when it all went horribly wrong as soon as there was any kind of pressure applied, to now. He he's, he understood, I think, clearly the lessons he has to take on board this year, which is you can't win it in the first third of the season, the first half of the season. And, but what got, I was quite interested, Gordo, from it as well was that, like, in race one and the Super Bowl race, he did look very controlled. He wasn't going to try and press the issue. But after the penalty, and we'll talk about that in, in a few minutes, <laughs> after the penalty he had in the Super Bowl race, he looked more ragged at the start of race two. He looked more emotional on the bike compared to those first two races where he seemed very calculating. I think it would have been really interesting to see how this race would have played out yeah. if the three riders had been in it in the final few laps because Bautista was out there with a point to prove and he was properly fired up. And, you know, we, we were robbed a little bit of that scrap, which yes. I think would have been a really good battle. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. It was a, it was one of those, well, they've done two races now. The, the third race is always a time to say, well, you know what, if I fancy it, I really fancy it. I've done, I've got my points on the board. I can now cut loose a little bit more. Added to that extra motivation, if we ever needed it, that Bautista had from uh, losing those points, which he thought was done unfairly. There's another talking point of the weekend. Um, so yeah, I, yeah, I agree with you. He's, it's uh, to me this year is going to be the person's going to take the greater reward if the bikes are as even as they seem with different characteristics and capabilities. Um, is the person that's going to keep the coolest head for longest to to take all the points he can every weekend, and then but risk when you have to. This is racing. If you back off too much, three guys are going to come screaming past you. So it's it's all relative. You know, we're talking about risk and taking it a bit easy. We're talking about on the edge of the, the you know, the, the, the speed of sound, you know. So it's it's all relative. But yes, I think the, the cleverest head round about that full risk mark 
is the guy that might be the one that triumphs at the end of the year. Well, let's move on to talk about Bautista a little bit before we take an ad break on the show because the green paint and exceeding track limits in the Super Bowl race, obviously, I'm pretty sure everyone that's going to listen to this pod has seen the, the screen grabs of that. Now, the rules are pretty clear about exceeding track limits. This one's tough to see. Um, but we have seen in the past that race direction have said if you know the center line of that tires across onto the green, you'll get a penalty. And we've seen this enforced in a lot of FIM disciplines now. There isn't actually any discretion given for race control to make a decision about these penalties. It is pretty much black and white, and they, they just have to go with it. I don't think it's a penalty anyone likes. I think that's the one thing to make perfectly clear. I don't think that there's anyone within race direction that we're looking at that and saying, oh, thank God we get to give this penalty to Alvaro Bautista and relegate him from second to third. But we saw it last year as well with the Yamahas in Aston, that final chicane. I, like, like everyone else, I don't like the penalty. No one likes the penalty. But Alvaro obviously will feel very aggrieved about it and... You know, I think it's understandable. Yes, and I think the thing is that it's, to me, when you look at the photograph, it's not actually clear that he did actually have a tyre contact patch on the green paint. When you look at it a bit harder, you think, yeah, probably, you know, a little bit. When you see the tyre spread out as a contact patch, rather than what we see in front of, is obviously the tyre deforms. Yes, Probably is on the green paint. In fact, it's probably definitely on the green paint, but by nothing, by next to nothing. So, yeah, it's a very, very soft penalty. If it was football, it's a soft penalty. It's a judgment thing about handball, whatever. But, yeah, he probably did touch the green paint, but not by much. And if I was a lawyer, I'd be arguing he didn't touch it at all because you can't actually see it. But there really exists for a good reason, and that's to stop people, especially younger and more inexperienced riders, trying to pass in stupid places, making a lunge in the final corner without worrying about the consequences for the other riders around you. Um, and in the old days, if they got away with it, you 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 wouldn't be penalised. Um, and part of me, being an old school kind of guy, you know, I'm not 21 years old anymore, mate, and I've seen a bit of racing. Part of me wants there to be gravel there. So if you make a mess, you crash. But the trouble is, if you do that, then you hurt other people, you risk hurting other people, and you make a mess, and you might call a red flag in the middle of the race. So the green's got a purpose, especially at the end, is to keep the riders on the track. At the end of the day, if the rider goes off the track and he wasn't pushed by someone else, it's his fault. And I think it was it was interesting as well, Gordo, that we did see in race two, Axel Bassani was penalised for consistently exceeding track limits. And a lot of the time, it was down the Venchlang, the back straight, where he ran out wide over the curb on the exit of turn five, and he just ran through the gra- ran through the grass and the gravel through there, kicks up a big puff of dust. Very similar to what happened with Locatelli in race one, whenever a stone came back and pierced the oil cooler of Alex Lowe's. You know, there was a penalty given for what what you would view as being old school track limits infringements, and this was a penalty given for that as well. So it did show that you know, there is still that white line and the the grass doesn't stop riders. But it was a decision I thought that was the right decision, obviously, because we saw Bassani do it time and time again. Yeah, when you do consistent uh, things through the race, you doesn't run the risk of getting penalties. But on the last lap, if you go on a green, you drop one position, done. And it happened last year to Toprak and Locatelli who got robbed from his first uh, podium and had to wait till the, the final race to get a, a, a real podium. Um, but at the end of the day, it, both riders transgressed the green. Uh, there was a great controversy, we'll all remember, from Magnicure when uh, Toprak did that on the final lap. Um, and then there was a complaint put in and it all got very nasty. Um, but you, you can't argue against the fact that the guy touched the green. And you're not allowed to do that in the last lap. If, if this was a rule they put in retrospectively, you'd be going bananas. But end of the day, they all know they can't touch the green. So whatever I'd be, if I was a team manager, I would be sitting down my rider every single race going, do not touch the green on the last lap, whatever happens, because you're going to drop a position. So... I think the the green paint, like top rack last year, obviously the Magni Core incident is the famous one, but he lost pole position in Aragon as well for going onto the green paint on the back straight. He was pulling, pulling a wheelie on the exit of the chicane and 
didn't quite have control of the bike and just drifted onto the green paint down the straight. Didn't give him any time advantage, but he lost pole position as a result. He lost that lap. We obviously saw Odendal in Mizano in the Super Sport class. He lost, I think it could have been a race win in uh, Mizano whenever he was exceeding the, the limits as well. And sometimes that was going on the outside of turn one, you know, to try and get into the into the right line for him. And, you know, it is matter of inches and sometimes millimeters like it was for Bautista but it's the same for everyone well and here's the other thing is another thing because we had to think about it a lot on the weekend um, the green paint actually helps the rider in front because he now knows or she now knows that if I get my bike even two feet away from the green line the rider behind is not going to pass me on the inside or, or the outside, if we're talking about an outside green paint situation, that's like two feet of help to you. So you can avoid that green paint. And like the last chicane example with Batista, you can go a foot and a half out because the other person cannot go past you on the inside. And we've seen races one like that and asked them before when someone's made a lot of mistakes, someone's used the tarmac that was available beyond the white to come through and, and overtake. So it's actually doubly in your interest if you've got somebody right on your backside you can use that rule to say well I don't have to risk hitting the apex by millimetre perfect to stop somebody coming up the inside because you've got well, call it whatever you will two feet you know half a metre of free space to not have to hit it and know that no one can come past you and you know that if they do and even if they pass you over the line they're going to get pinged back one position so if you, to me you can use the green paint as the person in front. That's a great advantage for the person in front. And almost invariably, the person who gets punished in these green paint things is the person who is in front. So somebody needs to work that out as a, as a tactic. You can you almost know? treat it as, as a wall by yeah, the side of the track. it's a wall. It is a regulatory wall. There's there's a perfect way to look at it. It's like uh, it's a wall at the TT. The guy can't overtake you around the outside if there's a wall there. It can't be done. Well, you've got an invisible wall. Use it. And that means it, and it makes you safer. So, this was fuel to the fire for Bautista going into that second race. And, uh, you know, we saw him on Twitter talk very, very clear and uh, adamant about his innocence. And, yeah. like you said, in, in all likelihood, it's impossible to see it from the picture, but in all likelihood, the contact patch of the tire, the way that it squishes down. And, you know, when you look at pictures of a bike from the side, you do see when it's on the gas just how wide that contact patch can be and, and it's not clear from behind that so it, it's an interesting perspective on it but for Alvaro this this was great this was extra motivation for him I don't think he really needs too much more motivation because he's had me you Evo from Speed Week <laughs> you know all the Italian journalists everyone in the paddock saying which Bautista are we going to get this year are we going to get the guy that was dominant at the start of 2019 or the guy that couldn't keep upright at the end of 2019, or the or the guy that went to Honda, cashed his big paycheck and had massive crashes, gave him a big crash damage bill because he was trying to override the bike, trying to get really good results. Two rounds into the season, it looks like it's the experienced Bautista, the guy that's learned the lessons from the last three years. This is his fourth year on a superbike. He knows the Pirelli tires. He knows the bike. He knows the tracks. He knows he's got no excuse now. So he looks like he's the real deal now and for me it's great to see because obviously enough the Ducati's a, it's a weapon there's no doubt about that we've seen that time and time again over the years and obviously Scott Redding second and third in the world championship the last few years Rinaldi's been able to win races on it Bassani's had podiums you know we've had really strong riders on that Ducati all the way through Philip Ertl in Assen looked really strong as well so we know it's a really good bike but we also know that they're an underperforming team they've consistently not being able to win that championship, going all the way back to Carlos Cech in, what was it, 20, 2011, 2012? So they've had opportunities, and the pressure's on for Bautista. A one-year contract, all about his incentive, all about his bonuses. It's up to him to make sure that he's the man, and two rounds in, he looks every inch of it. Yeah, he does. I mean, Jonathan was obviously, if there hadn't been that incident, Jonathan was going to be the rider of the weekend, but to me it was Bautista because... He handled what was happening all around about him. He approached the thing properly. To me, watching out on trackside, and I did actually manage to watch one session early on Friday, Saturday, Saturday, I think, 
from trackside. And he looked the fastest guy out there in the pit of the section. I was watching that and I had no idea what the times were. Um, came in and he was like third or fourth fastest. But he just looked on it. Um, and when Bautista's doing well on that bike, he kind of looks as if he's on the edge. But it's like the bike is moving around, but he's completely serene on top of it. That's when you know he's going faster on that Ducati. When you see all those races, he, he looked like he's maximising it. Absolutely, but he was just going up to the edge and not, not going over it. He knows he's got to do that this year. He's done that so far. He was just gonna, in a slightly passive-aggressive way, if I remember his comments correctly at the media scrum at the end, uh, kind of saying, well, look, you know, the rider in Superbike, you know, alluding to a few incidents that he's been involved in in the past, can be like this. And when you do this, you're going to end up with the incident that happened. I think he that was him kind of saying, look, maybe we should do a little bit less kind of loose Superbike riding and maybe a little bit more let's all stay together and sort it out in the NGPs type of riding where you're not allowed to, you know, it's not historically the way of doing it, you know. Um, I think he might have had a wee, a wee, a wee chip at that and an otherwise innocuous statement. When you actually look at the background and the history, you think, hmm, maybe he was making a little point there. Well, coincidentally, Gordo, because obviously BSB started its season at Silverstone the other week and... Uh, one of the big talking points, talking to people within the BSB paddock, was that at the riders' briefing, Tom Sykes got up and said, we all need to show more respect to each other out on the racetrack. We don't need to be bar to bar. You need to give each other space. You need to try and uh, respect each other on the racetrack. And uh, needless to say, in BSB, no one's going to do that other than look at Tom and think, right, you're you're weak. You're there for the taking. And yeah. there was blood in the water. And Bautista, we know that with Ray and Raz Gurioglu. This is the first time they've come to blows on the racetrack where it's actually led to an incident. But for a year, they've been absolutely perfect with one another. Toprak has always been schooled by Keenan to be incredibly aggressive. If there's an opening, you take it on the brakes. We see it time and again with Toprak. If that front end's working well, he feels great. He feels he can do things that no one else can do and he makes overtaking moves. You know, Bautista obviously coming from the MotoGP school, particularly in the 800 era, where it was a follow the leader, wait for them to make a mistake, make a move. He's had to adapt to the rough and tumble life of World Superbikes. And we hear it time and again where can this rider adapt to Superbikes? Can this rider make the transition from MotoGP or the Grand Prix paddock to do a really good job? You mentioned your rider of the weekend being Bautista. My rider of the weekend was Iker Lekwona because he got his first podium. He had three top five finishes. He backed up what he did in Aragon where he had three top, I think it was three top nine finishes in Aragon, maybe even top eight. And he looked so strong all the way through the weekend. We're going to take a break on the Paddock Pass podcast, but when we come back, we're going to talk Lekwona, we're going to talk Honda, and we're going to talk about some of the other stories in the weekend, including the likes of Michael Vandermark returning from injury, Scott Redding being able to get into the fight at the front, and uh, we'll tie up any other loose ends from the Dutch round. Renthal Fat Bars are synonymous with off-road world champions. The Renthal Street Fat Bar draws from decades of experience to create the ultimate 28mm handlebar in a range of street-specific bends. Whether you're looking to alter the height, width, rise, or sweep of your handlebar, Renthal Street Handlebars offer a bend to suit your requirements. Use the WorksFit Handlebar Comparison Tool at Renthal.com to find the perfect bend. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass Podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. And Gordo, I mentioned my rider of the weekend being Iker Lekawona. I think he won a lot of fans over the weekend. Not only in the grandstand, we had 50,000 fans at, uh, at Aston. And I think a lot of them became Lekawona fans by the end of the weekend. But he won a lot of admirers in the media center as well. Because he had two big crash, well, he had one big crash Friday in the afternoon session, came down heavily on his hip, big high side. He had another crash on Saturday morning, but every time he went out on track, he just looked fast. He was consistent in the races. He did a really good job. He was able to battle with everyone else, showed that all the speed that we saw in the second half of his MotoGP campaign last year with KTM has been put to good use when he's gone onto a superbike. He looks a natural for the class. He looks like he's being able to really elevate Honda as well. He's pushing that project forward. Yes, um, I think the 
whatever else has been improved in the Honda camp this year, and obviously they made changes to suspension and the brake manufacturers. Um, Lecona has definitely arrived in suit about the right idea with the right approach. Um, he's but he's given it absolutely everything. He's he's trying every corner, every lap, every session to improve the bike and to go faster, and that clearly showed at Assen. Um, the big thing I think is that the first two rounds when we've been actually racing are are well used Grand Prix tracks that the new Honda guys know at least the racetracks um, and to some degree, therefore, the secrets of those racetracks and what to do and not what to do, then you just have the bike to learn. The next round they go to is Estoril and we'll see where things are because they haven't tested there, they haven't raced there. It's all new for them. Um, and the data is obviously going to be different because they've changed some key components on the bike from the two previous years when other people were riding the bike. So Estoril tells a lot, but on the evidence of Assen, Lekona's ride, especially in race two, was tremendous. Because he definitely wasn't 100% fit. Um, and he was taking on the best guys at a circuit that's, that all of them are good at and all of them know at least as well as he does. Um, and okay, he didn't finish close to the podium if you didn't have Top Rack and Jonathan not making it. He wasn't like right on the backside of a podium, but he deserved it because you have to only race the people that are in front of you. He kept his head, he tried to finish second, and when he realised he couldn't, he said, okay. And and he did settle for third, but I think because he had no choice. Just at the end of the race, the Yamaha was better set up. Obviously, Locker, as we've spoken about already, he's got more experience in this class. Um, he's he's very podium capable. Had obviously seemed to have better tyre um, and made the benefit of that. But to get a podium six races in, even with a couple of the top riders out, is still pretty good. I mean, I, remind me here, Steve, I think that uh, Batista took three podiums all in when he was on Honda. I need to check that. That's just my wee memory there, which has unfortunately proved to myself time and time again uh, is, is a bit fallible, but he didn't score a lot of podiums on that Honda. He really didn't. Yeah, look, for, for Honda, for Alvaro, he had his first podium was in Aragon in 20, and then he had one in Catalonia, and he had one in Jerez, and that was it. So he had th- yeah, three podiums in two years. Lecona's had had one in, in in two rounds, and obviously it's it's always worth remembering that uh, the work that Bautista and Haslam did plays a role in everything that we see from Honda. But I think Lecona just looks like looks like a guy that's been able to to learn a lot in a very quick space of time. It's only him and Bautista are the only riders to score points in every race, which again is another impressive stat for him. Yeah, and I mean. I think he comes here as a rounded package. I've said it before. There's no better training for a rider than to go through the MotoGP school, whichever way you do it, whether you do it through a Spanish or a one-mate class, Red Bull rookies or whatever, um, and come through that way or just come through the Grand Prix ranks by because there's plenty of people coming a year, two years, three years behind you to say, okay, let's give this guy a go. This guy isn't going to be world champion. We'll give this guy a go. That breeds a certain type of every single session counts, every single performance counts, every corner counts, every single click on the bike counts double than it does in any other class. Um, and therefore, you learn faster. You have to. If you don't, you get you lose your ride. Um, and Lacona obviously lost the ride to come here. But I think when you get to that level of someone like him, uh, it then comes down to the personal character of the person. That's what makes riders make it in Superbike from the MotoGP paddock or not. They go in with the right attitude, which is yes, I want to win, but I need now I need to learn something new now, even though it's down. MotoGP is the peak, and Superbike's down. But you have to learn, or else you'll get swamped in that paddock as well. So you have to get go about it the right way. And all the signs for Lacona are that he's doing exactly that, and his character to me seems like he fits into Superbike. He's quite chatty. He's quite open. He's quite honest. He's, he doesn't hold back. He's not trying to make a splash and he's not trying to hide in the corner in a kind of aloof way. He's dug in. I mean, he's straight in there. Hello, how you doing? You know, that doesn't always happen with some Grand Prix riders that kind of arrive and think it's, how do I say this diplomatically? It's all a bit beneath them. Um, well, he's not been like that at all. Um, and I've seen every type of MotoGP racer come to, Moto, to World Superbike. Some of them become champions. Some of them are done in a year. The careers are almost over. 
I always think it's really interesting, Gordon, whenever we've talked about MotoGP riders coming across in the past, because you always said that Biaggi was the first one that seemed to really take the big step. And it was where every lap, every corner mattered. Every problem mattered. There were no big problems or small problems. There were problems. And you had to solve them in 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 levels of importance. And you go to the big problem first, or you go to the one that would have the biggest impact on lap time, and you would find the solution. And every time he goes out in practice, he was trying to set fast lap times. I think it's really interesting that there's been, obviously, some riders in the past, like you look at, you know, some, some riders like Sykes is a good example because Tom had so much success as a world superbike rider. He's a world champion, could easily be in a triple world champion. But his approach to the job at hand was very different to what someone like Biaggi did because Tom was always really good for getting the bike ready for a fast lap. And if you gave him the grip and you gave him the ability to set a fast time, he could set a time faster than anyone else. Absolutely incredible over a single lap. But you'd see him in practice sessions, do a fast lap, do a slow lap, do a fast lap, do a slow lap, do a fast lap, come into the pits. Never really doing a full race distance or a long run. I think it's really interesting that when you look at Yamaha, obviously they've got Raz Gudioglu, he's super bike schooled. They've got Locatelli, who's Grand Prix schooled, Moto3, Moto2. And every Friday afternoon, they make their riders go out and do that long run. Top Rack did an 18-lap run on Friday. Obviously, it was 21-lap race duration in Aston, but we had a red flag at the start of that session. That was what basically forced him to make it into a shorter run. But uh, it's important for them to do those things. And I think that's one of the big keys that we've seen to their success is that they take that approach that you've got to maximize all your time out on track because it's limited. You know, we've got a very busy schedule in World Superbikes now. Like, And I think fans at home may not know it, but we've got obviously on a Saturday is your best example of it because at the European rounds or most of the European rounds this year, we'll have a Superbike FP3 session, three Super Pole sessions, a Yamaha or three cup race, and then we have our three races and then another or three cup race. So we end up really limited on the amount of time that we have available for uh, being able to actually get the superbike riders out on track and find improvements. Yeah, it's um, it's a skill on its own. And it, and it does also pertain to your team as well. But it's a skill on its own, right, to maximise the use of your track time and have the right... Like, you can call it tactics, you can call it strategy. But... You get your strategy for the start of the weekend. Say, okay, we're going to do this in this session, this in this session, and this in that session. And you have to be clever enough to pull that off. If it goes wrong, then you have to change your tactics to to allow for that and maximise on the things that are going to make the maximum benefit to you. But yeah, I mean, I think the the approach from the top teams of Superbike is much more MotoGP focused. If you want to use it that way, now the training wise, um, although half the people that you see in the paddock um, doing the technical jobs or team manager jobs and MotoGP are from Superbike, funnily enough. <laughs> when you look at, seriously look through that paddock and it's quite funny how many ex-Superbike people are there. Um, but yeah, that's the that's the one, I'd say the one big difference. But I think Superbike's a lot better at doing that. They, they match that, uh, okay, there's only so far we can take the bike because it's not a MotoGP bike. The bike will eventually get a bit loose. The bike will eventually be compromised in design because there's something on it you cannot change. So yes, but you you take that bit as far as you can go, and then you can worry about the things that you are allowed to change. Um, and yeah, Biaggi was maybe not the first one. I mean, Kaczynski was very exacting, and he came over before. It's just a little before my era of actually being at all the races. Um, Biaggi was yeah did bring a certain GP mentality. Carlos Checa is after him. Um, there is a certain mentality of that from a rider's point of view. Um, it's a long time since superbike teams could kind of just, yeah, let's do the best we can and we might win. You know, if you take that approach, they're going to get beat um, and, and beat badly, you know? Yeah. Obviously, Kaczynski's always an interesting one. A motor, uh, 250 world champion. I think he finished third in the 500 Grand Prix class before moving to superbikes and took him, what, two years to win the championship. And then pretty much that was it. He went back to MotoGP on a 500 Honda and we never really saw him again after that and uh, you know John was John was obviously when you talk to people from that era quite a strange fish but uh, like you said Gordon no doubts about what he could do on the bike and I think that's where it's always interesting to see who can make the adaptation from one to the other he was obviously able to do it Bautista's done a good job at times now it's up to him to prove that he's had three years to learn now's the time to win the championship this year and I think that's the, the key thing to see who can who can learn from their mistakes 
And I think that kind of neatly brings us to our uh, last manufacturer to really talk about, BMW. Have they learned from their mistakes? Because Aston's always their best track of the year. They, they're really good there. We saw Scott Redding have a much stronger weekend. And obviously enough, that was capped off with a top five finish on Sunday. But uh, we also saw Michael Vandermark back in action. And, uh, you know, Mikey's injuries, they're pretty severe. You know, a spiral fracture of the leg five weeks ago was nothing to laugh about. And Mikey came into the media center on Thursday laughing and joking about, you know, let, let, you know the, the, the instant he had with the mountain bike and then what was going to be ahead of him for the weekend. But I tell you what, he might have been laughing and joking. He wasn't underestimating how difficult it was going to be. But I was super impressed by Vandermark this weekend. I think for me, he was the hero of the weekend. Because if we were racing anywhere other than the Netherlands, he's not racing. Instead, it's his home round. He does absolutely everything he can to be ready. In free practice, he didn't take a lap off. I think he still did 50 laps in free practice. And that actually, he probably did more than that because we had free practice three as well. He was really busy. And then went into the Super Bowl session, did all three races, and got better and better as the weekend went off and capped it off with an eighth-place finish. I think it shows so much about the improvements he's made in terms of his fitness, his approach to being a professional, world-class motorcycle racer, and just that determination he has. I was super impressed by Mikey. Yeah, I mean, Mikey's uh, can be quite spiky, and he's, uh, he's dealing with people if you ask him the wrong question and all that stuff, and I've seen him be a bit, you know, he, he can definitely flare up a bit. Uh, I asked again, him the wrong question on, on, uh, on Saturday him. then, oh, when I, I whenever this. I said to him, Mikey, Chris Ponson, last corner, at home, really? And, uh, <laughs> oh, Mikey dear. was was none too impressed by that. Oh. Obviously, I was I was saying it tongue in cheek, um, but uh, you know, had to be said as well, Gordo. You yeah, know, well, and, uh, not luckily, me, luckily, <laughs> luckily, Mikey knew that I was only joking with him because, like I said, just such an impressive weekend, and that was even before the Saturday races. Well, if you told me. We knew the severity of his accident. We've seen the photographs of his uh, the plates and pins and things. And I mean, it's really five minutes ago since he was there. My wife's a nurse, and I explained the situation to her, and she looked at me and said, "Why was he allowed to ride?" Well, the reason he was allowed to ride is because he passed his fitness tests. And the reason he was allowed to ride is because he went out and showed them, "Okay, you can ride," and obviously he got injured any time. There's a lot of questions going on here about should he have been or whatever, but. He passed all the tests. He went out on the bike, as you say. He did lots of laps. He, he went with the right attitude. Let's see, let's see, let's see. But he told me flat out when I asked him the question straight, I would not have come here unless I thought I was going to be able to ride. How well or how badly, but I was going to be able to ride. There was a lot of pressure put on him, whether it was put on him or whether he just knew it was there, that that whole weekend, everything, the attendance, the everything would have been... If he had declared a week ago, I can't go, would have made a massive difference to everybody's feel about the, the that race weekend. Now, he and Michael being such a strong character, it would have been him finally that said, OK, you know what, I'm going to have a go at this and see how we got on. And he was reviewed a couple of times medically, but he came through it to the point of finishing eighth in the second race, even with other riders that might have finished in front of him. So you're talking about, what, a net 10, 11? That is still amazing. Eight riders finished behind them in that second race. A lot of them pretty good riders. So even he said the only real problem he had was the changes of direction, of which there are many in Assen. But amazingly, even on right-handers, he didn't have any problem tucking his leg out of the way, getting his foot in the right position. I saw a bicycle around the paddock, like literally did a lap of his, his team trucking an old bicycle. And he didn't have a ball of his foot on the pedal. He had the heel of his foot on the pedal and his, his injured leg. And I'm thinking, man, he's never going to, you know, he just won't be able to do this. But no, he did. And he was able. Whether he should have been allowed to or everything else is another discussion for probably another day. But he fronted up, did the best he could, and it ended up adding to the weekend. Um, the whole experience, it added to the entire weekend that Michael van der Mark was there and finished inside the top eight. And whatever else you think of whether he should or shouldn't have been allowed to, you've got to say, that's amazing. And he, you know what he's like, he decided he was okay. He would not have been pressurised by anybody else into making him ride. I just don't see that in Michael's character. The way he is, he's more likely to tell him to go away and do one. But, you know, if somebody was trying to twist his arm too heavy, 
Um, so do you think the pressure the guy was under? you think the consequences if he had had a big crash? What a great performance from Michael. And and part of me didn't want him to ride and part of me thinks, wow, I'm glad he did. You know, it's, it's the nature of our sport. It's a difficult sport of ours in so many ways. And look at what he did. I always look at a quarter one, and you hit the nail on the head there. Why was he able to ride? Because he was fit enough to ride. And he wasn't a danger to anyone out there on track. He was faster than some other guys on track. He was able to hit all of his markers. He was able to be consistent. And, you know, you you never want to underestimate any injuries because day-to-day life, Mikey's injury is really bad. But whenever he gets on the bike and he's still able to move, and especially considering he hadn't ridden a bike since December, you know, he was able to jump onto it, be really competitive. I think it just shows... It shows the the just the sheer talent that these riders have and what they can do, and Mikey showed that as well. And uh, I think it's one of those things where we've seen lots of riders with really bad injuries, and sometimes they're not able to ride. We saw Eugene Laverty have a big crash on Friday. He tried to go out on track, and he wasn't safe for him. He felt that his arm was giving him trouble, so he sat it out because he knew that he was going to be a risk to himself and a risk to others. So he didn't want to put anyone into that position. It's easy for us to look at it. And everyone always wants to look at it and say, oh, he's, he's, he's single-minded. He's only thinking about himself. But these riders don't approach it like that. They do have to think about everyone else. They don't take anything for granted. And they go out and they do the best job they can. Yeah. And Eugene's incident was quite uh, strange because no fractures, no anything like that. But the, the swelling in his arm was such that it was cutting off literally the ends of his fingers and stuff. So his ability to use his right hand, braking and accelerating, the, the only real things you do when you're racing, the two main things in your armory, were compromised. And he, he took that decision as much for other people as himself. And if Mikey had went out and realised, I can't do this, he would have taken that decision as well and said, look, I can't, I'd try, but I can't do this. So Eugene's angry that he couldn't ride, but he also knew it was the correct decision, the only decision. Um, anyway, and the medics said no to him anyway, but I think that they knew that this is the whole bike is in your right hand. Um, so it's like, where you're injured? If Mikey's problem had been on the left leg and not the right leg, his gear change leg, he, he probably wouldn't have got near the racetrack. So it's like what you have to do, what you can do. That's why there's these medical tests and people take those things into consideration before you're allowed to, to actually race. Um, I always think there should be more control and outside control and non-racing specialist control of medical injuries and people are allowed to ride. Um, it's kind of one of those things I think it would just be a, a progressive thing. Um, but Michael clearly was okay. But any other doctor from outside might have just said, no way, son. You know, well, this this is the thing. This is where I like. I remember a couple of years ago there was a, there was an incident where a rider had a broken ankle, and they were told uh, by their their doctor away from the racetrack, "I oh, don't uh, don't walk on it. Don't yeah. you know? Don't do anything. You know, you've got to you've got to rest that up to so that it'll heal." And uh, the rider was there. What do you mean? Like I had a podium at the weekend, you know, and, <laughs> and the doctor couldn't believe that they were racing. Yeah. Just like I'm sure Michael Vandermark's doctor, his GP, will be looking at his performance of the weekend thinking, how is that even possible? But it is possible because that's what these guys are trained for. And I remember I asked Eugene Laverty about it once and I said to Eugene, you know, what's, it, what's the difference between being injured and being hurt? And Eugene said, if you're injured, you can't race. Eugene was injured at the weekend. And yes. when you're hurt, you can get through it. And, yes. and I asked him, like, what was the first injury you had that you rode through? And he said that he broke a nail in a crash and putting his glove on was really sore and he thought Jesus I'm not going to be able to race like this it's dead sore he was only a kid at the time obviously and then he got through that race and then he thought alright oh, Jack I managed that that was okay and then he had another crash and he you know he broke a bone and then he's there like ah, I'll, I'll try it maybe I, maybe I can manage this and sure enough he was able to, to race with that then he raced with, I remember in 2014, I think he broke both of his ankles at one stage in 2014. It was some some serious injury he had on the Suzuki and he was able to race through that. Riders find a way because that's what they're conditioned to do. You know, like I, I played golf with Alex Lowe's, he had a broken shoulder and he still bet me because he figured a way around it. 
and it was the most humiliating experience I've had in the golf course. The man could, you know, and, and you look at it and you think, you know, that's what that's what these guys can do. They can just force themselves to adapt and but, force themselves to get through something. And that's what's so impressive. Yeah, Jamie Whitham once described it to me. I used to do a regular column with Jamie in uh, Superbike magazine years ago. Um, and I, I said to him when he came back from injury and he thing, he's not going to ride. And he did. And he just battled his way through whatever was wrong with him. And I said, how do you do that, James? How how do you do that? And he said, Gordo, it's not the how, it's the why. Because <laughs> he could have, <laughs> he could have quite simply said, look, I'm too injured, I'm sorry. And everybody would have went, okay, Jamie, no problem. But Jamie knew that he could ride and, and went out and rode. It's not how, it's why. Why do you have that last little centile that you know other regular normal people don't have you know because you want to win and you know the sport you're in I think every rider has to have had a conversation with himself saying this is dangerous this you know the worst could happen and even all the stuff below the worst is not good and could have a permanent effect and they start and they just say okay they eventually have to have that conversation with themselves and say okay I'm not in an office job if I want to be good at this, I have to take the risk. Even if they go largely injury-free through their life, their whole racing life, and some riders kind of do that. Um, but, the, but they all have to have that conversation themselves to say, okay, I don't think it's going to happen to me, but they have to accept it. They're in a very dangerous sport, and therefore they have to grit up when other people would have said, not a chance. You know, it's too sore. Um, so, But to go back to your original question about the BMWs, where are they? I know. I was just gonna. I, I was just gonna <laughs> kick on to that now. Yeah, I, was, I was aware that <laughs> even even in my world of regular tangents, I think we were out on about the fourth shell no, of I, the tangents. I, I put us on this tangent today, Gordo. <laughs> I put us on this tangent. I'll take but, responsibility for well, that one. Well, okay. Let's let's make the case for the defence for BMW. Look at every one of the riders this year. When you look at that lineup, I go, "Hey, not bad. That's a that is a great lineup." And there are de facto four factory bikes this year. Those Bonovo action bikes are really pretty much there, right? Um, so you look at that lineup, you think fantastic. Well, Scott Reddins had a lot of things to get used to. The four cylinder engine, the way the BMW is, it wasn't, it was scaring the podiums and won a race and got some podiums last year. It, it's, it was capable of going faster to all the hands of, um, of, of Sykes. So yeah, the, the, the BMW has obviously got capabilities. It's also not quite finished yet, what the Yamaha was. How far back it is compared to the best bike is still open to debate. And the reason it's open to debate is even though they've got those four riders, they had a weird thing we spoke about in the last podcast to think about why did they start testing so late. They've got Michael van der Mark injured, the guy who was the most experienced and most current and in the factory team last year for the full season, out. So any feedback is not his, not the guy that you know. He knows everywhere he's been. Um, Scott had to get used to a new bike. Um, knew it wasn't a Ducati, but I think he was quite shocked in Motorland how, how much different it was and how far back it was relative to what he'd left. You had Baz, who for his fantastic uh, wild cards at the end of last year and a very strong season in Moto America, uh, was also changing bike um, and had not been in the full world superbike scene other than those two wild cards for a season. Um, and then you had Eugene, who had an incredibly difficult year last year uh, with one of his teams folding and everything being a bit irregular and things. So the season started in a slightly irregular fashion for BMW when on paper it was like, wow, you know, this is going to be their big step up. So we'll see whether the bike, the, the people around the bike, the management strategy, whatever they've got behind the whole scene is going to be successful when Mikey's fit, when Scott's got a few races under his belt, when Eugene's fit and healthy and back to normal, and when Baz, who already looks pretty good in a, in a lot of ways, um, and his fitness certainly seems to be good, um, has already shown flashes. And Scott finished in the top five. He, he was top six, which you would say then would be a net top eight or nine, um, which compared to Motorland seemed impossible. They were so far, he was so lost in Motorland didn't even speak to the media after the races. That's just not Scott. Um, which shows you how upset and how disappointed and shocked he must have been. Um, well, yeah, he's still not exactly bouncing up and down with joy, but he, I think you can see light now. Um, but they all, they are, they are, 
really good plan in the setup to get all those riders in that stage and to put more investment in to get the Bonovo team up to the standard, etc., is now compromised by the condition of the riders and you can argue their, their approach to testing in the winter. And maybe they had to do that with four bikes to supply with the same stuff. Maybe they had to wait a bit later than everybody else because they have genuinely got four factory bikes. But they started late and it's been difficult. We will see how good that bike is and how good the riders are on it. I guess half season. I guess. Maybe longer. Take a while. I think it's going to be interesting to see how the season progresses for them because obviously on Sunday's race two, we saw Baz crashed on the opening lap. He'd been the top BMW all the way through the weekend as well. So we missed out on getting him into that fight. But uh, I think that kind of wraps up nicely everything that we saw all the way through the weekend in Aston Gordo. And uh, like I said, you know, World SBK continued to deliver in Aston even if we ended up with the two big names sidelined. And it's going to be really interesting when we come back after pretty much, what, four weeks off? We come back in Estoril and uh, we'll see what happens there because a very different racetrack. And uh, I'm quite curious to see what happens there because we've got that long fast right-hander that leads on to the pit straight in Estoril into a big heavy braking zone so what's Bautista going to be like in Estoril where we've got lots of big heavy braking zones second gear corners and what's Toprak going to be able to do because he's you know been a little bit off the pace compared to what he would have expected coming into this or when I say off the pace he's obviously been there all the time but the bike hasn't been the way that he needs it to be and then we get to see you know, Johnny bounced back from, from this instant as well. Like, I'm already excited for Estoril. Do you think of the motivation of the top three guys? Batista's got his nose in front when he thought he was going to be behind. You know, how motivated is he going to be to make sure he keeps that gap? Especially as that's how it started for him in 19. You look at Toprak, who has actually been a bit better at some of these you know, Motorland was actually better than it, than it was last year when he won the World Championship. But it's also been, it's just not, there's something not right. It's not quite right. They're using front tyres and they're using the back tyre too much in Assen. This, they weren't expecting that. The 22 bike, they made changes. That's always a thing to, to get your head around. Uh, and you look at Johnny, who was on his way a perfect weekend and because of a, a, a whatever you want to call it, let's call it a racing incident, Steve, uh, has now lost a bucket of points that he was, he really probably would have won that third race. If he didn't, he would have been absolutely in contention till the finish line. Um, so his motivation must be through the roof, especially because they do seem to have found a bit more with the package this year, however old the package is. Um, so, yeah, even if you just look at the top three, yes, they're always going to be a real sort out. Um, and a very different track, as you say. It's a very, very different track from any of the first two. So it's uh, that's going to be the sorter. That'll be the real filter. Um, I still think we're going to see the top three being the top three this year. But I think Estoril can throw up a few more surprises, um, given the nature of the racetrack. And, and it should be hot. You know, I mean, in theory, it should be actually quite hot in a month's time in Portugal. So the, then the real heat will make a difference. You know? I get to go to Estoril for the uh, for the junior GP championship as well in, in a couple of weeks before Estoril. So I get to have a nice little trial run in uh, Portugal as well before that so I'll report back and let you know that the weather's pretty oh, good oh I see is that how it is that's is how that it is it? you know I'm, I'm abandoning Superbike Scordo oh, see, just see. to look at some some Grand Prix kids basically alright where's your hotel is this is this a holiday race are you on a beach this is not a holiday race I'll be on commentary for that one but uh, and I, I'd love to be on the beach I'd love to be going down to down to Lisbon a couple of days golfing head out towards the racetrack on Sunday and just watch watch some future world superbike stars because obviously a lot of these young Grand Prix kids are looking at the likes of Locatelli, Lekwona now, and they're seeing, you know what, there's a good potential to come to world superbikes. There's a lot of money to be made. You can be at the front. You can finish on the podium. You can challenge for race wins. You can win a world championship in super sports. You know, they're looking at uh, Agat or Baldessari, all these guys that have come across. Gordon, you know, it's, it's a bit of a golden age for everyone in the paddock. Yeah, we're getting the riders from different places than we have before. But the racing, the, the rules, the racing, the focus again. Have you not noticed everybody's talking about Superbike again? My Twitter feed's alive with MotoGP people and, other, and others saying positive things about Superbike. That's not always been the case. And there's a reason for that. And it's because it's great entertainment. And people have woken up to the fact that, you know, this is something you kind of have to watch and you have to take care of, take attention to. Um, and that's great. It makes everybody feel good. 
you know, everybody associated with it, you know. Um, yeah, this is one of the best times that Superbikes had um, and since I've been there, and I've seen a few good times. Uh, this is, never quite know what's going to happen every weekend. And even in a race track, look at Aston. Johnny was probably going to win three races, but what three races? You know, yeah. it was fantastic three races. Even if you knew, okay, Johnny will probably win all three. It's still, you, you, and he didn't, did he? So there's another thing, you know, it, it didn't happen. Um, so what you expected to happen didn't happen. That's when racing's good. You never quite know who's going to win, even if you know who will be near the front. Yeah, I think it's fair to say Gordo, it's been fantastic. And if everyone thinks that the Paddock Pass podcast is fantastic, they can go to patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast and uh, sign up to become a Paddock Insider, where during the course of Grand Prix weekends, whenever, obviously enough, Gordo, sometimes MotoGP doesn't clash with superbikes, such as when we've got the Spanish Grand Prix and the French Grand Prix in the next couple of weeks. And uh, for any of our Paddock Insiders, they'll be able to listen to David, Neil, Adam and myself talking about the latest news from inside the paddock each day we'll be bringing you the paddock notes show so 10 15 minute show to get you up to date on the day's action gordo big thank you to you for joining us as usual on the show absolute pleasure mate as always and a big thank you to fly racing and to rent all street as well for supporting the paddock pass podcast it, it really is very much appreciated by all of us this episode of the paddock pass podcast was produced by jensen beeler david emmett steve english Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. It's sitting here on a wee stand right next to me, like, perfect. this far away. Okay. That far away. That's perfect, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a bit close, JB, a bit so closer. All good. Right, Gordon, we'll do a wee clap for Jensen.